you would, would you take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 3. This morning we looked at this passage, and I won't be repeating what we did this morning, but I want to get more to uh, the application and meditation upon these verses of what um, lessons we can draw from them, but just to get the, the context to set that before we get to the application, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1 all the way through the chapter. So we're going to read the entire chapter, Hebrews chapter 3. This is the word of God. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion, on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for forty years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation, and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This is the reading of God's word, and may he bless the reading of it. The author of Hebrews is making the plea to the congregation that they would not return back to Moses, that they would not look back to the Old Covenant, that they would not look back to um, the law as they were facing persecution as a means of comfort or as a means of salvation. He is warning them to hold fast to the end, hold fast to Christ, hold fast to that message that you were first given. And in calling them to this, he references Psalm 95 to show how their forefathers had fallen in the the wilderness, that they had been led by Moses, yet they fell. And going on to explain this, we get to verses 16 through 19, where he asks three questions and answers each question with another question. And that's our context here. 
And the title of the sermon this morning was The Root of Rebellion. And we looked at this and asked the question, well, how is it that they could have rebelled? How could they have been sinful? How could they have been disobedient in light of all that they had heard from God's word, all that they had seen of God's supernatural acts in their presence? How could they rebel? And we see, verse 19, we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So unbelief was the root of their rebellion. Their rebellion flowed out of a lack of faith. Their rebellion, their wickedness, their disobedience was all the result of the fact that they did not trust in God. Now, as we look at this, it's perplexing to look on that situation and say, boy, they saw so much. How could they have sinned. I think that we can say that if you are in Christ, you could say the same thing. How is it that we could still sin in light of what Christ has done for us? I was hell-bound. I was blind. But Christ came into my life and called me to walk in his marvelous light. And if you're in Christ, you can say that too, and you can say that that is truly a supernatural birth that is being born above. And so we look at them in somewhat disdain. How is it that they could have sinned? And I think that we could be quick to judge those in the wilderness, and this is where we begin to meditate upon the implications of this passage. We could judge them for their sinfulness and wonder why. But let us remember this one thing about sin. Sin is always inexplicable from a distance. And what do I mean by that? I mean this, is that if I see someone else in sin and it's not me the one sinning, what is my immediate gut reaction? <laughs> how, could they, how could they sin like that? How, how could they do such a thing? It's easier to see sin in someone else instead of actually seeing it in ourselves, isn't it? It's much easier to see someone else going through something, look back on this wilderness generation and think, not me. If I was in that generation, I would have been faithful. I would have been a supporter of Moses. It's always inexplicable from a distance. But you look at 1 Corinthians which is a related passage in chapter 10, which we've been making reference to the last couple of Sundays. And we read this. Speaking of that wilderness generation, and in the context of this is Paul introduces the wilderness generation as that Christ was with them, present with them, and How could they have sinned? How could they have stumbled? How could they have been overthrown with Christ with them in the wilderness? You see that in verse 5. It says, They all drank from the same spiritual rock, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Christ was present with the wilderness generation. But then look at verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of ages has come. And that's exactly what's taking place in Hebrews, is you're given an example of people that have fallen, people that have turned away, that have 
rebelled against God. And what does it mean to be an example? It means this is our model. To be that example and for it to have been written down, it was written down for the purpose of our sake, for our sake to look back upon that, to see what they did, to question our own hearts, examine our own hearts, rather, and to guide us. It says specifically, Paul writes, this, these things were written down for our instruction. So if you ever wondered, why did God record this event in the Old Testament? <clears throat> he recorded it for our example. He recorded it for our instruction as an example, as a model for us, as a warning. And, and, and our instruction is specifically here means this, for our admonition, to warn us. One Greek lexicon says that this specific word is to advise someone on the dangerous consequences of what could happen. Why were these things of the wilderness generation recorded down for us? Why do we have those specific events that took place? Is to warn us. And I believe is that we see it in the, the reason why we have these warning passages that are real warning passages in the book of Hebrews is God's means of seeing that we stay on track. The fact that there's a warning before us causes us to continually examine our heart before God. And so, in other words... When we see the wilderness generation and we see what they did, we are seeing sin from a distance and we can never say this, that would never happen to me. Because these things were recorded for a warning for us. Nor could I say, how could they have ever done that? Rather, a better question is this, why hasn't that happened to me yet? And the only reason why that hasn't happened to me yet is God's grace. The only reason that I don't rebel more than I do is by God's grace. It is Christ working in me and through me. God's grace is the answer every single time why it hasn't been me or why it hasn't been you. And so when reading these, uh, of these examples, what are we supposed to do? Is the author of Hebrews calling us to question our salvation? I don't, I don't really think so. Maybe for, for some, they need, to, they need to really wrestle with, am I, am I saved? Do I know Christ? Or rather, they need to recognize that God sovereignly gives us warnings to examine our hearts as a means to perseverance as a means to sanctification. We see in 2 Peter, similar admonition in chapter 2, verse 6. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Why was it written down of Sodom and Gomorrah? It gives us an example to tell us what will happen to the ungodly. So when we wrestle with this idea of looking back on sin, if we see sin in others, 
I think the first thing we have to do is check our own pride. You know, those questions, why, why did, how could they have done this? I would have never done that. That flows out of a prideful heart, doesn't it? That flows out of a heart that says, I don't need God's grace for perseverance. There's something else that we have to examine when we are looking at the sin of others that was written down for an example for us. When we look at them, is our judgment of others unjust or is it accurate? Are we judging the sin of others out of self-exaltation or true love and care for our brother? How is it that we judge sin in other people that we see? How is it that we handle it in our own heart when we do see sin taking place? I think of Jonathan Edwards' resolutions, which I think you should, you should read once a year. So you get to the end of the, the year, read, read his resolutions. But number eight, he says this, and I'm sure many of you have heard this. He says, resolved to act in all respects, both speaking and doing, as if nobody had been so vile as I. Wow. He says, and as if I had committed the same sins or had the same infirmities or failings as others and that I will let the knowledge of their failings promote nothing but shame in myself and prove only an occasion of my confessing my own sins and misery to God. So when we look back on that wilderness generation that fell and that was recorded down for an example, Edwards is saying that we look back on that and it produces shame in our own hearts and we say, that could be me. Not, that could never be me. Rather, it brings an awareness and confessing of our own sin. And I think Edwards is making a point that we have to come to grips with. When we see sin in others that we might not have committed, we know that in our heart we are susceptible. And while we might not have committed sins of action, actually acting upon that, what's always present Do we have those sins in our heart and our mind? You think about Jesus, what he says. You didn't actually kill someone. You're not off the hook. You didn't actually commit adultery. You're not off the hook. What's going on in your heart? That's what Jesus calls us to to examine. I think Edwards is capturing that very point. And so when we see sin in others, then we must then therefore go to the throne of grace when we recount the failings of others. The wilderness generation that fell doesn't lead us to pride, but rather the wilderness generation leads us to humility and to grace and to go to the one that who was tempted in every way that we are, but yet without sin, is able to help those who are tempted. So when we read these examples... We have to deal with the sin that they went through, and we have to deal with the own sin in our own hearts. The second thing is that I want to pull from this to think about this evening, 
It says that in verse 19, so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. God ultimately swears that he will not allow them to enter into the land. And they're not able to enter into the land. And we could look at this and see that they were rejected from entering in the land. They were barred from entering into the land. And it was performance-based. It was based upon their performance. It was based upon their works. It would be really easy to come to that conclusion. Because we see that they rebelled. They were sinful. They were disobedient. Now, if that was all that we were given... We would say they did not enter the land because they were sinful, they were rebellious, and they were disobedient. But actually, it says they didn't enter the land because of unbelief. So, why did they not go into the land? Well, because of rebellion, because of sinfulness, because of disobedience. Why were they sinful? Why were they disobedient? Why were they in rebellion? Because they didn't believe. So, could you say... Their sinfulness was the cause of them being rejected? Well, in one sense, yeah. But ultimately, when it boils down to, what was the root of their sinfulness? They didn't believe. They didn't have faith. And they didn't inherit the land because they were unfaithful. They did not believe in God. They did not believe in His promises. And therefore, they are rejected. But we have to be careful here with this. If we boil it down to just simply this, they weren't good enough, then you have to ask this question. How good did they have to be in order to receive the land? That's the problem. It's the same thing with us today is how good do I have to be to inherit salvation? So am I barred from heaven because of my sin? If I don't know Christ, yeah. Because I've committed the ultimate sin. I don't have faith. And all of my sinfulness, all of my sinful actions, every careless thought or deed will be counted against me for an all of eternity. Why do I have those? because I didn't trust in Christ. I would be barred from eternity. But we have to see something here, and that is this connection between faith and works. I want us to see this connection by looking at what Scripture teaches us about faith and works. Titus chapter 1, verse 15 says, To the pure... All things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. So you see two groups that are defined here, and just look, if you're looking at the text, it's those that are declared pure, they're contrasted with those that are defiled. If you think of something purity being clean, And you think of the opposite of that, of something unclean. So there's a contrast here between the pure and the defiled. Those are two groups that are uh, showing how they respond according to their nature. So you'll notice, to the pure, all things are pure. 
But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. How do we become pure? Paul says this in chapter 3 of Titus, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. In other words, there's nothing that we contribute to our righteousness. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. And why? Because we don't have any righteous works. But according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, we are made pure. We are made undefiled. And so there's this changing. Verse 6, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So notice what Paul says. If you're not in Christ, you're defiled, you're unclean. You're in Christ, you're pure. You have the righteousness of Christ. This isn't according to your works. This isn't according to anything you've done. Where does he go from there? Admonition. This is what you're supposed to do as a result of who you are. Verse 8, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to what? Good works. There's the connection. That's what was lacking in the wilderness generation. That's what's lacking in anyone that's trying to earn their way to heaven is they have not been made righteous so that they can actually produce good works. And so Paul tells us we are now made clean, and after we are made clean, it is then that we are commanded to do what? Good works. No longer rebel. No longer be disobedient. No longer be sinful. Because you've been made clean. You respond according to your nature. Paul says the same thing in Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So are we saved by works? Do our works contribute anything to our righteousness, to our salvation? Absolutely not. But after we see that by grace... We are saved, we are, he says in Titus, we we are made righteous, that we are made pure. The result is that you are to do good works. Now here it says this, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That we should not walk in this wilderness in rebellion or sinfulness. And that flows out of what? Our faith. Good works are are not faith, but the result of faith. The wilderness generation lacked faith, thus they produced rebellion. And we must come to grips with this. If we say we know the Lord, that means this, there is a necessary corresponding change that takes place. That's the whole point of John's letter, his first letter. 
If you say you know the Lord, how can you walk in darkness? We are saved through faith alone. We're not saved by faithfulness. We're not saved by a living faith. Faith alone is the vehicle of salvation. However, faith perseveres. Faith progresses. It grows and it shows itself in love for God and love for neighbor. So faith and obedience are separate. They're distinct, but they're always connected. That is to say, we necessarily grow in holiness, not by ourselves, but because Christ is in us. If someone trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they have been truly been born again, what does the scripture say about them? That they are a new creation. The old Adam is dead. The new man is here. They have been given a new heart. They have been given new desires. They have been given the mind of Christ. There is a definite change that takes place. What comes as a result of that change? Good works. The 1689 says, These good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruit and evidence of a true and living faith. Through good works, believers express their thankfulness, strengthen their assurance, build up their brothers and sisters, adorn the profession of the gospel, stop the mouths of opponents, and glorify God. Believers are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, so that they bear fruit, leading to holiness, and have the outcome, eternal life. Those that are in the faith make it to the end. He who began a good work in you will see it to completion. The wilderness generation did not believe What flowed out of their hearts was exactly what flows out of all dead people's hearts. Rebellion against God. But if you're in Christ, what flows out of your heart is something different. You have the work of the Spirit taking place in you. And as you are exposed to the Word, it changes you, it transforms you. Is that not the goal of the Gospel is transformation and holiness? Should we expect holiness of ourselves and our brother and and our sisters. Yes. That's why we do life and community together, isn't it? That's why we have those one another passages. That's why we're told to love one another, to serve one another, to keep one another accountable. In fact, didn't we see in Hebrews that actually... We are called to exhort one another every day as long as it is called the day that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In other words, our community life together is a means for us growing in our transformation. Well, the first thing we looked at this evening was how we should view sin in others, how we should view the sin of the wilderness generation, that we should never think that we're above that, that we couldn't fall to that. The second thing is, is that we see the connection between faith and good works. And the third thing this evening that I want us to think about is this. 
the consequences of their lack of faith affected the faithful. I made reference to this this morning in 1 Corinthians. In this, is that in that group in the wilderness, not everyone was unfaithful. There were those that did not bow to the golden calf. There were those that did not rebel. There were those that had the Spirit of God upon them just as Moses and were prophesying. There was a faithful remnant in that group that did not cross over. Joshua and Caleb were the only two that were counted faithful. But there was an entire remnant of people. Moses did not cross over. He saw from a distance, but he wasn't allowed. We'll see our elder brother Moses in heaven. There was a group that didn't make it. So the consequences of their lack of faith, the consequences of their rebellion, the consequences of their sin did not just merely affect themselves. We see that there was faithful in there. We see in 1 Corinthians 10.5, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. What does it mean by saying most of them? It means that there were some that he was pleased with. They were counted righteousness by faith. You see, the sin of one person affects other people in a detrimental way. When I sin... I'm, I'm harming first and foremost myself, right? But not always. Sometimes my sin could be a direct harm to someone far worse than I could harm myself. And you can think of all sorts of sins where that could be the case. But our sin is not isolated to ourselves. Even if it is a sin against ourselves, it still affects others. It affects my family. It affects my church family. It, it, it affects everything about my life as a pastor. And for you, if, if it's you, it's, it affects your family. It affects your workplace. It affects everything. But the wilderness generation was a corporate body of people that were sinful And the vast majority of them were sinful, and the faithful had to bear the consequences of the sin. That's just what happens. When you think about it in a local church, let's say you have a local church that you're part of, and 80% of that church is full of gossip and slander and not loving one another and serving one another as Christ had called them. What is the watching community seeing? They don't want anything to do with that. It would affect those faithful, wouldn't it? But think if you lived in a society where everyone abandoned God's word and deserted God's word, would that not affect the faithful? And isn't that exactly what was taking place in the time of Hebrews? Is that there was persecution rising against the church and that was the danger is that they were looking at going back to Moses they were looking back to angels they're going to look back to Joshua they're going to look back to all of these old things as a way of abandoning Christ for something else you see there are consequences for sin when there is a mass amount of corporate sin it's just 
a fact. Think about Achan. And Achan holding back some of the spoils. People died for that. People died for it. You think about a society that abandons God's word, the further that they get away from God's word, that has a direct impact on you and I, doesn't it? That hits us right where we are. Because the further a society gets away from God's word and the more that you cling to God's word, the more that you stand out in that type of environment and the more the pressure comes at you that you're different. Let us not look to society and think, I don't want to have persecution, so I will be tempted to not live as Christ has called me to live. Because in many ways, we're, we're living with the consequences of sin in our world right now. And it impacts us. We, how, how many times have we had conversations about, you can't watch a TV show without certain type of characters in it that ruin the whole show? It's already impacted us, hasn't it? There's an abandoning of God's word. So let us not be tempted to just let go of God's word. Let go of Christ and go along with it to avoid any pain that comes with it. There's a consequence of rebellion in a society, and it affects the faithful. The good news is this, is that we have Christ who is able to help us in it all. One final comment is this. The wilderness generation was led by Moses. When you think of Old Testament characters, um, Moses rises to the top, doesn't he? David. But really Moses is, is the guy that seems to, in so many ways, typify Christ so poignantly. They were led by Moses. Moses didn't save them. Their connection to Moses didn't save them. Their heritage to Abraham did not save them. Hearing and seeing the miraculous works of God did not save them. What's the lesson for us? You know, I had the most amazing grandmother. I, I don't know that I've ever met a more Christian woman than her. She shared Christ with all of her grandchildren, pleaded with them. She gave us the straight gospel, told us of an eternity in hell where there's gnashing of teeth if we do not trust in the Lord Jesus. She was a wonderful woman, a wonderful Christian, faithful all the way to the end. My connection to my grandma doesn't get me any points with Jesus. My connection with being in a church and being a pastor and preaching God's word to the the best of my ability by God's grace gets me no points. God's not grading on a curve. Being in a Christian home doesn't guarantee that I'm going to know Christ and be in eternity. Being in a Christian congregation 
does not save me. And if I were to rest in those things as they were looking to rest in, well, Moses talks to God and we're following Moses, then I'm going to fall. This is why the author tells us, look to Jesus. Matthew Henry says this, Unbelief is the great damning sin of the world, especially of those who have a revelation of the mind and will of God. This sin shuts up the heart of God and shuts up the gate of heaven against them. It lays them under the wrath and curse of God and leaves them there, so that in truth and justice to himself, he is obliged to cast them off forever. That's Matthew Henry's comment on verse 19. That unbelief is the great damning sin of the world. What prevented them from entering that rest? Unbelief. And what will prevent us from entering into that eternal rest promised of God? Unbelief as well. We're held accountable for that one. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and that in him we have salvation by your grace and through faith alone. We thank you for these warning passages that uh, draw us to examine our own hearts before you. We thank you for these lessons that we learn. We pray that we would not have a prideful look at sin, but rather would look at our own hearts. We pray that, Father, we would recognize how our sin affects others. I pray that, Father, that we would recognize that out of faithfulness and faithfulness comes good works. And we thank you for these things that we may produce good works as you are producing them in us and how they can bring comfort to our soul. I pray, Father, that above all, we would continually look and cling to Christ, knowing that it is in him and him alone that we have salvation, that we have assurance that we have comfort, and that in him alone we may enter that eternal rest promised. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.